and welcome into Comfort Zone Camp's first podcast, Hello Grief. This is a podcast that will bring meaningful discussion around the navigation of grief and how it impacts everyday life. Now to kick things off, we bring on Lynn Hughes, the founder and CEO of Comfort Zone Camp, who has been helping grieving children, teens, and parents navigate their grief journey over the course of 25 years. Today, we will be discussing the organization's 25th anniversary, its history, and the impact it has made over the course of two and a half decades. Did you know that Comfort Zone Camp began its journey in the June of 1998 and started running camps in May of 1999? The nonprofit started out small, running a couple camps a year as an all-run volunteer organization. Today, it operates in a neighborhood of 30 camps around the United States and impressively all at no charge. It has been a pioneer in helping children navigate grief by providing a fun and safe space where kids can laugh, cry, and establish bonds that can last for a lifetime. I know I'm ready for the first Tello Grief. Looking forward to hearing the incredible journey of an organization that has helped thousands of children. Up next, my interview with CEO and founder, Lynn Hughes. Welcome back. And as I said on the other side, really excited for our first podcast of Hello Grief. I am Kelly Hughes, the organization's operation director. I am also the husband of our guest, Lynn Hughes, the founder and CEO of Comfort Zone Camp. Lynn, welcome in. Thank you. This is so exciting. We've been talking about this for a long time, Kelly, and we are ready and excited to kick off our first Hello Grief podcast. So our topic today is the 25-year anniversary of the organization. It has been quite a ride, and you and I were at the beginning but my first question to you is, why a grief camp? Yeah, why a grief camp? I have been asked that a few times over the years, and why a camp? Um, I, when I grew up and, and lost my parents, there were not any resources. And we have a, a death avoidance society, and you were doing really well if you went back to acting like it didn't happen to you. And you put on that, that mask and tried to blend in with other people because when they found out you had a loss as a child, people would get visibly uncomfortable. And combining that with, I went to summer camp after my parents died. I went just to a regular two week summer camp, all girl camp, loved it. And it was a magical bubble where time stood still. And I could get back to being a kid again and step outside of my loss. And I just love that whole camp bubble. And then when I was in college, I wanted to be a cool camp counselor like I had and went to a eight week summer camp in the Poconos. And that's where I met you, Kelly Hughes, that you were also a camp counselor in the Poconos. And we just shared a real love for kids and, and summer camp. And we went three different years to that, that camp. And I think if that camp world speaks to you, you're always trying to justify a way to go back to camp. So eventually, I I wanted to create a resource for, for grieving kids and help them get back to being a kid before 
instead of being a mini adult before their time and what better place to put it in than a place that I love so much than a magical bubble of being at a camp and all the beauty of nature and all the the fun and turbo bonding that happens at a camp so I, I combine an unmet need in society uh, with uh, making it one of not only my favorite places but I know one of your favorite places as well. So we mentioned in the intro that our camps started uh, in 1999. The organization actually began in June of 1998. But let's go back way before that, and let's give the listeners a little bit of an idea of your life growing up, your mom, Marilyn, dad, Skip, your brothers, and then ultimately what happened, which sort of drives you to YA grief camp. So – I grew up in Michigan, and I have three brothers, and I'm the only girl, and kind of nothing out of the ordinary with my family, and then when I'm nine years old, my parents were playing tennis, and they were playing tennis with another couple, and their kids, as well as my brothers and I, were running around the tennis courts wreaking havoc, and not really paying attention to them playing tennis, and then we looked up to see my mom hobbling off the tennis court with my dad assisting her as she was walking, and we were yelling out, what's wrong? What's wrong? And my mom was saying, oh, this is not a big deal. You know, I just, I, I twisted, you know, an ankle. I pulled something. It's not a big deal. And my dad really wanted her to go to the emergency room. And she, get, again, kept poo-pooing it like, this is not a big deal. So we went home and called the family doctor. And he gave her the advice that you would expect to ice it, elevate it, and stay off of it for a few days, and you'll be fine. And I can remember her propping her leg under under a pillow the next few days and um, it not really being a big deal. And then that Wednesday morning, my dad was getting up early to play tennis at about 7 a.m. And my bedroom door was next door to theirs, adjacent to theirs. And I woke up to him repeatedly calling my mom's name. And eventually I got out of bed and said, Dad, what's wrong? And he said, turn the light on. And as I did, and it was kind of like a camera flash going off in my eyes. So I was kind of blocking my eyes from the light. And he said, I think your mom's dead. And unfortunately, my mom had died in her sleep from a blood clot. So fluky weird almost never happens, but it did happen to my family. And then my dad was really uh, guilt ridden. He got really uh, focused in that if he had made her go to the hospital, that she never would have gotten the blood clot and never would have died. But that guilt can be really irrational. And in this case, I mean, there's no way 30 minutes after she pulled a muscle in her leg, they would have caught a blood clot. That's just not how it works. It was just one of those unfortunate things. And my dad knew how to be the dad and the breadwinner. He had his own business. He had no idea how to be the dad and the mom. And so he had my grandparents move in to take care of us. And then they started hiring live-in housekeepers. And for the next year, there was a series of four different live-in housekeepers coming and going as well as my grandparents my dad everything really changed with my dad he started sleeping on the couch to avoid the bed my mom died in eventually he put a new addition onto our house because he didn't want to sleep in that same bedroom he just was really consumed by by grief he started drinking a lot sadly as his coping mechanism yet he had four kids he had kids 14 10 I was nine and my little brother was six years old and he really was was pretty checked out and turning everything over to the housekeepers or his his parents who were coming and going from Arizona. He also started dating right away, which added another confusing layer to the mix. And somewhere about a year after my mom died, he decided he would get remarried to somebody he barely knew. He only knew my stepmom for three months when they got married. And 
he thought if he got a woman in the house, that would solve everything and bring stability. But when you're drinking really hard and when <clears throat> there's a saying, you attract what you are or water seeks its level. So if you're not emotionally at a, at a good emotional uh, mental health level, who else is going to be attracted to that kind of hot, walking hot mess of emotions and grief that my dad was? So thus set the stage for my stepmom. Apparently, my dad had a breakdown on their honeymoon and told her he still loved my deceased mom, but there he was married to her. And they had a very rocky marriage. They didn't know each other well. And um, at one point, about a year into their marriage, he moved out and he, and he was going to divorce her. He left us with her. And a month later, he came back. Uh, started going to AA, started losing weight, and a couple weeks later had a massive heart attack and died. And it was the day before I started junior high, and I was 12. And, you know, I didn't know anybody who'd lost one parent, let alone two parents. And even on that first day of school, it was such a big milestone starting junior high, and I didn't want to be different on day one and be tagged as a girl with the dead parents, even though that's you know, who, who, you know, the most uh, notable thing about me and my parent or my family. So I actually went to school that first day. My, none of my brothers did, but for me, it was just really important. And it ended up being a really hard day because I was putting a mask on that whole day and trying to look happy and look like everybody else on the outside when on the inside, my insides were really crying and nobody had alerted the school. So, you know, teachers didn't know. And, um, but I think it just speaks to how different members of the same family experiencing the same thing respond so so differently. And then we lived with my stepmom for about four years, four or five years. Um, she really was not into raising us. And um, she would tell us she was doing us a favor. And this was a place that she hung her hat but wasn't a home. And, you know, we just tried to be the best kids possible to stay in our same houses and uh, with our same friends because the friends were the only thing that really remained consistent. And then when I was a junior in high school, um, she was suing our estate to get more money, and we had to go testify. Not that we had a ton of money, but my dad's life insurance got turned into trust funds for each child under 18. So she got so much money per month per child from that, and the judge turned her down because she was getting a decent amount of money back then. And I just decided it was so stressful to live with her that I asked to go live with an aunt and uncle. So this was March of my junior year in high school. And, you know, who wants to move basically going into their senior year in high school? And no one, unless it's a really stressful situation, which it was. So I, I moved in with my aunt and uncle. I moved 30 minutes away, left my brothers back living with my stepmother. And um, I had a fun side of the family and a more proper. And I picked the, you know, the more fun uh, aunt. And she was married to a guy who wasn't so great. But I was like, how bad could Uncle Frank be? If he got to know me, I'm surely lovable. But his first uh, words to me were, I'll never love you as a father, nor an uncle, nor you sh should you expect me to, and walked out of the room. And so I, I was devastated because I'd asked to live there. I had moved away from my my siblings and my friends and this man didn't want me in his house and he completely would ignore me and the only time he would acknowledge me is Sunday he was a good Catholic you'll be glad to know he doesn't you know didn't eat meat on Friday uh, that he would shake my hand at the peace be with you on Sunday and then not talk to me or acknowledge me to the next Sunday at the peace be with you at church so it's very hard and confusing time and I just uh, uh, stayed away from him and went away to college moved myself in because my aunt was not even allowed to move me in and never never went back and um, you know when I got to college it was kind of a time to reflect and be realize you know focus on who were my parents and 
what did they instill in me? And the fact that, you know, I knew that they, what it was like to be unconditionally loved. They used to kind of fight and save um, front row seats of plays and recitals. And um, I did Indian princesses with my mom back in Michigan. And um, I knew they didn't want to leave this earth. Um, and I knew that they would want me to to figure out a way to still be a happy person and to be okay. And so all that really, and that they gave me, you know, that I knew what it was like to have a, a loving life and family life. And then I knew what happened afterwards with my stepmom and my uncle was not how it was supposed to be, which I think was a real gift. So, um, you know, I got to college and I also was reflecting on, you know, what was I going to be when I grew up? What did I want to do? And I certainly was never going to go back to uncle Frank's house and, and live there. And, as everybody struggles with the why of adversity, including the why of a death. And, you know, after my mom died and when I was nine and my dad died when I was 12, I truly believe that the death of my parents happened for a reason. God thought I was special and I was supposed to use my life some way to make a difference. No idea what that meant, but then I'm in college and like picking a major. And of course there is no major for, you know, using your life to make a difference. But, you know, I was really searching for that and trying to figure out how I was supposed to um, leave my mark and, and, and their legacy was me leaving um, my mark in some way. So instead I picked communications and uh, didn't have to take any math because that was the most uh, direct path to ensuring I'd graduate. I think your son would appreciate the, the communication. Yes, yes. Pick. Yeah, lack of math skills was definitely uh, passed down a few uh, times. So the seed for Comfort Zone Cam, of course, at the time you didn't know that, was planted 20 years before the organization started. But I am curious, as you're growing up, you're a young girl, lose your parents, and then into your teens and young adult, uh, what resources or how did you survive those years? Did you have someone to talk to, mentors, coaches, teachers? What were the resources you had leading up? to the start of Comfort Zone Camp? Well, there were definitely no formal grief resources. People really didn't go to therapy very much back then. And adults, when they grieve, it's obvious. Back then and even today, right, they wear black. They mourn 24-7. They, are, um, they have a hard time compartmentalizing it. Well, kids' grief doesn't look like adult grief. So I didn't, you know, look any different. On the outside, I still had my friends and did my different activities and um, and grieving kids can compartmentalize it and 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 still do other things. It doesn't mean they're not grieving, but sometimes you fall and you skin your knee, and and your knee hurts and it's bleeding, but then you're also crying because you missed your mom who just died. And then you put the Band-Aid on, and you're off playing ball again. And adults, if they blink, they miss it because kids grieve these short little bursts. So nobody really acknowledged the fact that, that we were still grieving, and um, – I think that I picked up on the fact people would look so stricken if I told if they met me or asked me where where are your parents or what does your mom, dad do or and you'd end up consoling them like are you okay with my loss I'm okay with my loss but clearly you aren't so you got the message early on to not really talk about it that people were extremely uncomfortable hearing about it um, friends my age were uncomfortable hearing about it. they didn't really know the worst thing in their life was their pet goldfish dying so it's it separated me. But the things that helped, I looking back, I was fortunate that people came into my life for a season. And I, I was always really aware of the fact that they didn't have to be there or show me extra kindness or mentor me. 
Um, but you know, it was a, it was my gym teacher in junior high who then went to the high school with me that I had him like four years and he took some time to mentor me and dad me, if you will. Um, it was a, a school counselor, um, one or two years in, in junior high or in high school that took a special care and time to nurture me. It was, um, just different people, friends, parents who would nurture me. Um, also interestingly, and sometimes again, it's not till years go by that you look at back what were significant relationships. But so my dad died the day before seventh grade started. I met my best friend the first day of seventh grade. She had moved in over the summer from a different state. Of course, I didn't know then that she would be my best friend for life. But by the end of seventh grade, she was definitely my best friend and went on to all the way through being my college roommate, maid of honor in my wedding. Uh, came down when our, our kids were born and was in the delivery room. So, um, you know, I, I didn't necessarily have parents, but I was also really blessed that I had a Nancy who was just rock solid and always there and showed up for me. And then I just did things at different points. I mean, you have different coping skills for me. I, when I was in junior high, I journaled a lot. And just getting my feelings out um, really helped me. Uh, I think sports and being active, you know, always really help me. But, you know, eventually I went to, to counseling, but it wasn't until I was on my own. I was 26 years old. And, um, and for me, it was like paid parenting and I loved it. And there was all this stuff that I just never knew. Cause nobody really, my stepmom and, um, my aunt, um, never really overly parented me. Um, so there was just a lot of life lessons that I was like, wow, this is the greatest thing ever. I didn't know this. So, you know, I really, and it also helped me certainly to work on the grief piece as well. Um, so I guess it was a variety of things depending on where I was. Um, but um, I was always kind of seeking still to be my best self and, and to try not to not let the, the sadness or some of the emotional handicaps that developed as a result of my parents dying um, take over. I think that uh, gives a really good glimpse into you know, the resources or, or, or what you did to try to uh, deal with your grief. And we eventually got married in 1996. You mentioned we loved camp, and we did. Um, and personally, I never really understood how grief, how it impacts someone's life. I lost my mom when I was 22, uh, and uh, but I didn't really understand the world you were in. And we always wanted to get back to camp. I thought it would be a traditional camp, quite frankly. But there was one, uh, I'll call it a luncheon, you were at where you met a 70-year-old woman. I'll let you tell them what the luncheon was about and how that impacted you and ultimately, I think, drove you to the start of Comfort Zone Camp. Well, I kept you know, graduating. I had to, I said, was supporting myself in various jobs and still had this feeling of incompleteness that I was supposed to use my life to make a difference. And I had these various jobs that, that all seemed random. I was in outside sales for a while. Then I worked for an association uh, company where I served as the ex executive director to a bunch of small uh, nonprofits, and I got formal training in that. And then I also worked at a hospice where I was the paid volunteer coordinator and got grief training and more volunteer management. So all along, though, while those were going on, I kept thinking, I'm supposed to use my life. I'm supposed to use my life. So I read this book called Motherless Daughters, and it became a bestseller. Hope was on all the morning talk shows. I think she sold over 600,000 copies. Um, I realized she was my age. 
I think this is back in like 1994, 95. And I was like, wow, you know, she's, she's making such an impact and I, you know, I need to get going. And I read her book. And for me, I didn't know there was any difference from losing your mother to your father. To me, it was just a big hole I had inside of me. So when I read that book, it really um, helped heal and give me an awareness on what I lost from not having a mother at a young age. So my new year's resolution, and it was 1995, just finding the jacket of her book and sending a, a letter to her publisher was talking about what the book meant to me, but also um, talking about my personal loss history, but also my professional um, history, because at that time I was running uh, nonprofits. And I told her if this had struck such a chord with grieving girls and women, we ought to start a national nonprofit. So two months later, Hope did call me on the phone and asked me to help her start a national nonprofit. And I knew my life was forever going to be changed in, in that moment and in good ways. And I remember not knowing whether to cry, cheer, or pee my pants, that I was just forever going to be like kind of changed in that moment. And uh, so I did help her start chapters around the country and kind of um, loosely consulted with her and some other women on, on launching this national nonprofit. And so what the luncheon you're referring to, we created um, Motherless Daughters Days the day before Mother's Day. So the first one that I put on in Richmond um, I think I had about 45 women attend and they ranged from 14 to 70. And during that motherless daughter's day luncheon, you know, we had time for people to share stories and talk. And I think we had a guest speaker and we had box lunches, which you were in the background, of course, being helpful as you always are doing the uh, logistics. And there was a woman named Barbara and she was 70 and she was talking about, she had lost her mom 60 years earlier when she was 10 and prior to coming to this luncheon, had never spoken to anybody about losing her mom. And that still 60 years later, she still wanted to talk, realized she wasn't alone. And she was even talking about as she got later in her life, how that was triggering another wave of her missing her mom and not having that person to comfort her. So it was just fascinating. And then we had the 14-year-old girl who had lost her mom a few months prior there. And you were in the background and afterwards... You said, like, wow, that's that's incredible. That's crazy. That woman didn't have anybody to talk to for 60 years. It really years. did make a big impact on me. And that was just our society, right? People didn't want to hear about it. And she, too, got that message. People were not comfortable hearing about her losing her mom at a young age. So, you know, how much extra baggage did Barbara you know, acquire in her 60 years? And how did that impact of her parenting or how she saw the world? And so it, it, it resonated with you and it resonated with me. And what you're leaving out, what you would say time to time say to me after uh, we graduated from college, you would say, what are we going to be when we grow up? And is this as good as it gets? And then you would throw in, how can we figure out a way to go back to camp? And of course, our, our model was the eight-week summer camp. And I, we would have a nostalgic pause of, oh, wouldn't it be great to be adults and go back to camp? And then I would like be the cold bucket of water, like, no, nah, that's never going to happen. And we'd go on our way. So this time, right after you were talking about, about Barbara, you also were like, you know, what are we going to be when we grow up? Is this as good as it gets? And wouldn't it be great to go back to camp? And this time when you said, I was like, yes, we need to make it a bereavement camp. We need to make it for grieving kids. Let's catch them at the beginning of the grief journey, like the 14-year-old girl, and help her in real time, as opposed to, you know, all those who didn't have resources like Barbara, um, and, and help them avoid so many obstacles and acquire all that baggage so that was where the seed of the idea came from you were a key catalyst in in that of asking that question just one too many times and finally I had an answer for you about how we could go back to camp as adults 
And then um, I had the idea. And other than telling you we should do that, I told two people, and I don't know if you're familiar, like a lot of people say, if you have a dream, you should tell people because they'll keep you accountable. So I told um, my therapist friend um, who was co-leading motherless daughter support groups with me, Jill Fitzgerald, and I told my boss at hospice at the time, Bob Dendy. So every now and then those two would like ask me what I was doing about the uh, starting a camp. I'd be like, nothing, not a darn thing. I'm kind of sorry I told you. And then Jill called me up one one day and like so this is about two years into me telling her and she's like, are you going to do the bereavement camp? Because I know this guy and he's talking about it. And I knew that guy. And quite frankly, I didn't like that guy. And purely out of my competitive spirit, within two weeks, I had a camp name. I had formed a board of directors and held my first board meeting. And that's how Comfort Zone Camp was born, because I was not going to let that swarmy guy steal my dream. And I do remember you bringing the idea home and talking about a camp. And, of course, I was very excited because we always wanted to do a camp. And you presented this grief idea. I didn't quite understand it, grief and camp. It seemed like uh, two opposites. And then I remember saying, do you think we can make money at it? And you said, it's going to be free. And I said, And then there was a big pause. Big pause. And I'm thinking, (laughs) okay, I guess I'm not going to quit my day job. Um, and I didn't for a while, but let's go to the start of camp. You mentioned 1998, your first, um, board meeting. I remember where that was over at Henrico doctor's hospital, but ultimately we set the first camp May of 1999. We gave ourselves about a year to, um, put it together, the camp. Let's go to that camp. Well, Kelly, you're missing a key part of, which is funny, a funny, You've got the chronology right, but one, two side notes. One is I set the first camp meeting on our anniversary um, back in June 29th, 1998, because I thought that would be lucky. And then you and I also at that time in our lives were having uh, trouble. I was having trouble getting pregnant and we were about three years into maybe trying to get pregnant. And uh, so we go along and we were thinking about, about giving ourselves about a full year and we were researching where to have have camps and um, we no sooner set the first camp date for May of 1999 and then I found out two days later I was pregnant and due the Saturday of that first camp so I was really like seriously God like I'm going to be giving birth to two things simultaneously and I don't even know if I'm going to physically be present at that camp depending on when the baby's born but it was really kind of added a a kind of a wonderful humorous like layer to the whole uh, camp planning but go ahead well, let's talk about the first camp. You're right. I remember that first camp. You were very pregnant. I kept saying to myself, what are we doing here? But you pushed through it, and you ended up having Evan on that Tuesday, by the way. Camp was that weekend. You ended up having Evan on Tuesday, which was uh, a good thing. But let's go to that camp. I remember, I believe there was somewhere between 30 and 35 kids. We got volunteers, everyone there. Talk about that camp. Well, we – so here we are, we are dealing with, and all, the, all these many years later, the world is still very death avoidant and has no idea that kids grieve and that they, that they need resources. So it was a little bit of a, a battle of we needed volunteers, we needed um, campers, and we needed money to make it free of charge. So we, we fundraised and we got, we got the, the money part of it, which was great, and then um, the Richmond Times dispatched an article on us, which is the big paper in Richmond, Virginia. 
and it got bumped from running on a Wednesday to a Sunday and readership was up 300,000. So that was a little, the, we started having a lot of fairy dust of these wonderful things um, happening to us that were, everything was aligning and doors were opening, mountains were moving. We really knew we were onto something. So um, when we wound up in that paper and that filled the camp with enough volunteer interest and also filled us with enough campers. So we, we got to that first camp and we had 34 kids. We decided that every child would be paired with their own adult big buddy mentor for the weekend who would serve as their anchor shadow friend. And we call those big buddies. So each one of them had their own special big buddy. We also needed therapists to lead our small support groups that were sprinkled in throughout the weekend. Those are called healing circles. We got enough healing circle leaders, camp nurses, and um, I had to go to the um, OB um, on the Friday on our way to camp. I had to, you know, get checked out that I was cleared to go. And I was, fortunately, I felt great. Um, so other than just walking around with like a little time clock ticking over my head, uh, you know, anyways, I was there. I felt great. Uh, Nancy, the best friend came down for that. Some other friends from Michigan came down and volunteered. Anyway, so it was just really special. And we just saw magic happen and healing occur during the course of that weekend. And we knew we were onto something and, um, we, it was just, it was just, you know, it was just, you know, it was incredible. It was a big love and the kids loved it. The volunteers loved it. The parents were so grateful when they came back. Um, so we were just definitely riding the high, um, of that. And then, you know, Evan was born a couple of days later and he was born about five 30 in the morning and the times dispatch had come out and done another story on us to cover that actual first camp weekend. And that came out the morning that Evan was born and as Evan was born and they, I held him for the first time, they slipped the newspaper article that had just come out that same morning in my other arm. And the sun was streaming in through the blinds as the sun was rising. And I talk about holding my two babies simultaneously, and it was a perfect life moment. And then we had our second camp scheduled for August of um, 1999. And we were excited, but we were also a little nervous because we thought, what if it was a fluke? You know, what if that magic was just all those right people, all the cast of characters we had at that first camp? And we did that second camp and the magic happened and the healing occurred. And we really knew we were onto something and we could consistently create that. And I must admit, even at our first camp, I really didn't understand the impact that Comfort Zone Camp would have on kids. Again, grief and camp seemed like opposites. But we did do our first camp. As you mentioned, we did another one in August. I'm curious, though, talk about the vision. You're in 1999. Of course, we're in 2024 right now. We've helped over 20,000, more than 20,000 kids. Was the vision there? at the start of camp. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's a great question. My original vision was to to build a full-time summer camp similar to the one that you and I worked at and went to and that we would run eight one-week um, summer sessions and build a permanent camp in Virginia. But in the meantime, until we got kind of our sea legs underneath us, until we could raise enough money to put that together, that we would do weekend programs. And when we started, there was about 10 um, hospices throughout the country that were doing one camp a year as their community outreach effort. Um, and we wrote to them, we talked to them, we went and visited one. 
but we were the first ones to form our, as a 501c3, that that was our sole purpose. And that's what we wanted to do was do bereavement camps. So that has remained the same. But over the years, what happened was, while we were putting plans together to do a permanent camp and trying to figure out how we would staff it and run it, um, we were three years old when 9-11 happened. And again, I was kind of tracking who was doing what in the bereavement the bereavement space and uh, especially in the bereavement camp space. And like I said, it still was relatively small. And we were our second year, we doubled to four camps and then we're in um, 2001. And in March of that year, we were in parents magazine, which was great. It was our first national media and the article was on newsstands because parents magazine was on for a whole month and people started writing to us uh, from all over the country saying, I've got these, you know, grieving kids and I'm in, you know, ABC state around the country, there's nothing here, you know, would you ever come here? Or could we, could we come to Virginia? And then we had these volunteers around the country saying, Oh, my gosh, you know, can I come? I really I had a loss as I when I was a kid, there were no resources, can I come support you in Virginia? So we um, started raising the money to bring kids to us travel scholarships, we'd put their parents up at a nearby hotel. And this one volunteer, um, Gary Mason, started coming down from New Jersey, and his sister had died when he was young, and now he's an attorney, and he he just felt really passionate because there weren't any resources in New Jersey. And after a camp or two, he got really passionate, and he was like, listen, there's nothing in New Jersey, there's nothing in New York for grieving kids. If we raise the money, would all your core volunteers, you know, hop on on a bus and come up? and run a camp in New Jersey, or if I get a busload of kids and pay for them, could we come down to your camp and run it for New Jersey kids in, in Virginia? And we're like, wow, that's, you know, that's kind of lofty. That's kind of big. So we would, we would put it like under the other on our board agendas. And we met um, every month on Monday nights. So fast forward to now we're in September 10th, Monday is a board meeting and under other is New Jersey, what to do about New Jersey. And we tabled it once again. So when I woke up to the horror of Tuesday, September 11th, I felt compelled to respond. Our board felt compelled to respond and we knew there were no resources in New York or New Jersey. So we quickly mobilized and um, by uh, November of that year, we were on a bus doing one day programs in the New York and New Jersey area bringing comfort zone up there. We also were in People Magazine mid-August, I think it was like August 13th of um, 2001, and people also were, they had just seen about us, they knew there were no resources, so there's also a lot of people in the New York, New Jersey area saying, we just read about you, will you come? So we had this kind of groundswell between Gary, and then we also had uh, Mitch and Jamie Dector, who were also local boots on the ground, and um then we realized we could take our program to other states and replicate the magic there. And so we just ended up as an organization starting to go wider as opposed to building our own permanent camp and bringing everybody to Virginia. So when you look back, the organization, as we mentioned, have been around for 25 years. Talk a little bit about what you're most proud of, some of the surprises. You could call it struggles. You could call it successes. There's got to be a lot. That is a loaded question. And I may uh, pose it back to you, so start thinking. Um, initially, my biggest surprise was how many of the kids wanted to come back. You know, after those first couple of camps, can they come back? And then how many of them wanted to know how old they had to be to be a big buddy or a junior counselor? 
So that was the initial big surprise that, that this became this community and this family and they wanted to repeat and come back. The biggest long term, now 25 years later looking back, is how many of our volunteer base are alumni campers. So over a third of our volunteers are former campers who want to pay forward what was given them. And we'll be at a camp and we'll just, you know, get the goosebumps and warm and fuzzies all over looking at how many of these um, alumni campers are, are there and volunteering and how passionate uh, Comfort Zone still is for them. And then there's a subset of those alumni campers of how many of them have gone into healing professions. I find just fascinating and so awesome whether they're they're therapists or school counselors or teachers or something in a healthcare space but how many of them are in are in these healing helping professions and they're these bright lights of understanding of of childhood grief and and so i i love how many of them are out there um making it making a difference in that space and some of the publications we've been in help me help me name them you've been in parade you've been in time you've been in people I know you gave a speech up at the Lincoln Center. You were one of the grassroots winners. Um, Barbara Bush was there. It was Red Book Mothers and Shakers Award. Yes, Abs- absolutely amazing. That was amazing. Uh, yeah. So yeah, the the there's been so many again that fairy dust that uh, you can't explain. But the the when it all started with the Parents Magazine, and that writer of that told her husband he should do a story on us, and he worked for People Magazine. And those were the first two uh, big media pieces that we had back in 01. And then just uh, when we were helping the families of September 11th, we were the first ones up there to respond and one of the most consistent responders to helping those families. And so um, a lot of the media had a lot of interest and that also helped really create a lot of awareness about kids and grief and how could a, a tragedy like September 11th not affect these kids and and it's also how could it not affect every loss that every child experience is a trauma for them. So, you know, it really helped start creating this groundswell of, of, of more awareness that kids grieve and they need a voice and a place and, and a comfort zone. But th- there was also a speech that somebody read the People magazine then asked me if I would consider doing a speech to 10,000 people at the Million Dollar Roundtable, which is, uh, was just a, a crazy wonderful thing. I was like, 10,000 people. Are you kidding me? Um, but I went and I took two alumni campers with me. One was a current camper and one was a young adult, 19. And, um, that was amazing. And, um, this past year we were in time magazine, um, spotlighting our camp for suicide loss. And, um, that has become such an, an increased, uh, need over the years since we started, but to put a spotlight on that and as well as a resource. So there's been so many, uh, Scholastic, um, I wrote a book for Scholastic, you know, and they also, uh, saw, um, some of the media that we'd done for the September 11th kids and contacted me about writing a book. So there's just been, you know, it's just very, very humbling, very, very humbling, but it's all been great to tell the comfort zone story and to let let kids know around the country that they're not alone, whatever they're thinking or feeling is okay, and that there is a, a place that they can come to to get back to being kids again. Let's specifically talk about the impact the organization has had on childhood grief. I want to make a statement, and I want you to react to it and tell us, has Comfort Zone moved the needle on childhood grief? I was at a camp many, many years ago, and I had a therapist say to me, 
because I was always wondering the impact our organization was actually having on children. I don't have a grief background like you do, but at that camp they said that a kid coming to comfort zone is equivalent to six to 12 months of therapy. And when I heard that, I was blown away because that is impactful. Talk about that statement and comfort zone camp. Yeah, it, it, so it's hard to to explain unless you know you go and you experience it and you see kids become they you know they're often come to camp and they're like carrying like a backpack that's so heavy like all full of rocks or the heaviest thing you could imagine they're just heavy with the load that they're carrying and somewhere during the course of the weekend the, between the the fun activities and the the talking time activities <clears throat> the making friends with other kids who are just like them who get them and lean in and say me too that somehow that again this transformation happens and by the time they leave on Sunday that backpack is just nowhere to be found and they are looking up taller brighter and visibly lighter in their load and therapists have equated that to six eight you know you know they've said that it's just such that what happens there is so profound and so impactful and we've heard that come back from the the parents and guardians about the impact once they come home we've seen it from the kids year over year and now that they're adults and in their mid-30s uh talking about the impact that comfort zone had on them so you know we've we've helped over twenty four thousand children and you know it's we just know that that it's it's made a different we've 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 heard about it in their profession choices or we've seen it with them still coming back and wanting to pay it for in the alumni camper and then there's the the kid, the people you bump into that you don't even know read about you or heard about you from a, a grieving child and what it meant to them, whether it's the teachers, the coaches, the school counselors, the, you know, um, you and I were sitting at a, a tech football game and I was making conversation with the man next to me randomly and he's a minister in the Virginia Tech area and he had read the Time magazine and he's like quoting stuff out of that article to two people at his church who are grieving. And so you just sometimes don't know um all the ripples, but, um, you know, we've had a lot of people come to our camp and go, uh, you know, make camps of their own and programs because they felt so compelled. There's certainly a lot more grieving camps um, and people in the space of childhood bereavement. You know, it's hard to say how much of that was, was comfort zone, but certainly um, us us being in the news or, or just being out there and, and being a consistent presence for 25 years and helping these 24,000 children um you know that it's it's hard to quantify but um we have a ways to go i still believe we have a death avoidance society but you know we're, we're chipping away at, at at encouraging people to talk about it and giving childhood grief a, a face and the organization has spread around the united states it is amazing the places that we've gone new jersey of course uh, there because of 9-11 uh, but from there, we are now in Massachusetts and North Carolina. We're out on the West Coast in California. We have these partnership camps, which are absolutely amazing. Talk a little bit about the spreading of Comfort Zone Camp around the country and why that's so important. Well, it's so important. There's, there's, just, there's more children than we're ever going to be able to reach and the more if we would have just stayed in Virginia, you know, our reach would have been smaller. As an organization, our goal is to help as many grieving children as possible. So, you know, how do we grow? And, and like I said, for a while it was doing, you know, thinking, oh, if we build this eight-week summer camp and we rotate people in. And then 
just by responding to the the call and the need uh, to go to New York and New Jersey, we had camps in two different states doing parallel programs. Then we had a gentleman named Bob Delante who read about us in in Guidepost magazine while he's on vacation in Italy. And he feels compelled to, to come to Virginia and start volunteering. And then he just kept beating the drum that we need to come to California. We need to come to California. I will be your local champion. And eventually in 2008, we went to California. And then um, we saw the magic happen out there and we saw the need. And then in 09, we went to Massachusetts. 2010, we went to North Carolina. And we're still in all these areas today as well as um, New York, as well as New Jersey. So we've been in these areas. And then along the lines, people started approaching us and saying, I've got this population of grieving kids. There's no program in my backyard. If if I help fund you to come here, can we collaborate to put camps on? So some of those have been single loss types, like a camp just for only suicide loss or for overdose loss. Um, camp and then some of them have been down in Florida Melissa Wanda was like you know she's sending her child from Florida up to Virginia she's like hey all kids in Florida need this so you know we came to Florida um, Intermountain Healthcare out in Utah the need is so great that we've gone from one to two to three camps there Um, we're working partnering with various hospices in different areas Um, so we've got um, the National Fallen Firefighters I mean there's it's just been amazing um those partnership camps have taken us to to different states and to certain loss types that we might not have ever served, but it's definitely been um, such a major facet, an important facet of our program. But, you know, we're now in about 11 states and sometimes that varies year over year, but um, we're, we're, we continue to want to do more. We know there's more kids out there. Yeah. The partnership camps have been amazing. And when I look back over the last 25 years, I am always amazed at the brand and people that recognize. You know that I wear letters all the time. I see ZC. I'm wearing a hat, a T-shirt, a sweatshirt. And I am blown away that how many people, not just here in Virginia, which is where the organization started, but we could be on the West Coast or in Utah, and people see those letters. And so many times they're like, I know Comfort Zone Cam. Yeah. Would you remember the time we were not too long ago trying to catch a red eye in California after a camp and uh, we're running, running through the airport and some ladies like comfort zone camp. Thank you. You helped my child. We're like, oh, my God, it's amazing. But, you know, we didn't couldn't break stride to even talk to them. But, yeah, you just never know who's going to going to say um, that they know us or give us a shout out. So it's pretty cool. So we're starting to wind down our first podcast. Hello, grief. And one of my final questions to you is, over 25 years, why has the organization been so successful? The organization truly has been successful, um, I think, because our core values, our kids come first. Grieving kids come first. We know our mission. We know who that's want to help. Um, and, and when we're putting the kids first and you're not allowing yourself to get swayed from who you're helping and our why, and our why is grieving children need a voice and a place and a community that supports them, a comfort zone. So I, I believe that, and I believe organizationally. Um, my personal mantra belief is you got to lead with heart and common sense. And if you lead with heart and common sense, good things will happen. It's how you treat 
the campers and their families. It's how you treat your volunteers. It's how you treat your donors and your key constituents. So I think if you lead with heart and common sense, good things will happen. And I think that that heart and common sense approach has, um, is really the secret to why we've had the success that we've had and the longevity. Well, it has been fun going down memory lane. I think a, a really incredible first podcast. And as we close, what else do you want to say about 25 years, our 25th anniversary, which, by the way, our first camp, May of 1999. So this May of 2024 will officially be 25 years of camps. Yeah, I, I, in this world that we live in, we're always trying to do more and move on to the next thing. And we're very guilty of that. You know, we you know ended the calendar 2023, smiled, and then January 1st hit, and we're like, oh, gosh, here, here we go again. And, you know, so I think every now and then it's really important to take that minute and to reflect on where you've been, how you got there, who helped get you there. Tell, tell your story, tell their stories. And that's something we really want to do this year. We really want to find... Um, ways to infuse like some some memories and reflections and honor um, all those stories and all those loved ones Um, and so we want to hear from you alumni campers you know where are you now what are you doing if you're not at camp come on back Uh, we're going to have different anniversary events and um, and alumni volunteers you know where are you now and and so we want to tell tell your stories tell our story tell the story of comfort zone as well as continue to keep our eye on what's next. What, where are the next 25 years take us? And we, we know we're not done. The need for grieving children, sadly, it has only increased during our 25 years. So we know that we need to do more and we want, um, we're, we're working out, we're ready and prepared. So, um, but we do want to honor 25 years, no, no small feat from you and I sitting at our dining room table and me saying, hey, Kelly. Seems like yesterday. I have this idea. Yeah, and then coincidentally, Evan, our son, the mile marker of how camps, he'll be turning 25 in May. So he's, uh, again, we can always tell how old camps are by how old Evan is. But, yeah, it's been an incredible ride, and uh, we're nowhere close to being done. Yeah, and no regrets. I would not change a thing because every single thing we have gone through has gotten us to where we are right now. It has been a pleasure. What a great first podcast. Did you enjoy it? Yes, I did. You made it very uh, not painful. Well, it's not going to be our last. And on the other side of the break, we're going to tell you about ways that you can get involved with Comfort Zone Camp. Don't go anywhere. You are listening to Hello Grief, powered by Comfort Zone Camp. I want to thank Lynn Hughes for her candid interview on the 25-year history of CZC. And as we close out Hello Grief's first ever podcast, we want to thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed and look forward to the next one as we plan to do many of these throughout this remarkable 25th anniversary. How to get involved with Comfort Zone Camp. Whether you're a parent or guardian who wants to sign your child up for a camp, you want to become a volunteer, or you want to support us financially, please visit us at comfortzonecamp.org. And please make sure you subscribe, like, and give us a five-star review. Until next time, this has been the Hello Grief Podcast, brought to you by Comfort Zone Camp.